Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our law firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients' diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Welcome to It's the Culture Stupid Part 2, but companies cannot bear the burden alone. In last month's program, we explored some of the reasons related to workplace culture that collective uprisings against sexual misconduct and sex discrimination have dominated the national and global conversation in recent months. And if you tuned into that program, you will recall that we explored reasons for the absence of female leaders, what behaviors are hampering strides for women at work, and the dynamics involved with relationships that develop in the workplace between men and women, just to name a few. As the fallout continues and more powerful leaders continue to be removed because of their egregious conduct, I have continued to reflect upon this issue of culture and wanted us to get beyond examining the workplace, to do a deeper dive, if you will. Why? Because how genders are socialized clearly does not begin when men and women join the workforce. So if the problematic messaging associated with issues like sexual objectification, harassment, and other dysfunctions are created early in life, we must look to these early stages to correct them. Now, I'm not giving companies a pass here. We are merely expanding the scope of responsibility in this segment. And to have this next level discussion, I have invited Dr. Lucretia Graham, who is a communication professor at Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri. Professor Graham's expertise includes educational pedagogy, design, and instruction, and she has designed and taught educational programs that include organizational communication and gender and communication. Professor Graham, Thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Now, many of the conversations around the Me Too movement as they relate to the range of sexually abusive behaviors in the workplace often turn to some of the sociological reasons why some men in power act like they do and why some women who are inappropriately approached or treated respond as they do. Help us out here, Professor Graham. Well, like you mentioned before, many times people believe that it's up to organizations to address sexual harassment, but we have been socialized regarding communication since even before we are born. Especially with the rise of technology, many people are able to find out the sex of their child before birth, and that is a prime time for people to begin gendering their children. I was actually reading a study by Kara Smith about pre-birth talk, and she was describing how her conversations with her child in utero changed once she discovered the sex of her child. And many times this does happen. 
even if people choose not to find out the sex of their child, people make assumptions, oh, it seems like you're going to have a girl. Oh, it seems like you're going to have a boy. Oh, you're going to have a girl and this will be the things that happen because you're having a girl. Oh, you're going to have a boy. These are the things that are going to happen when you have a boy. People have assumptions as to the relationship that will happen between fathers and daughters, so daddy's little girl, or mothers and sons, mama's boy. And even those words reinforce things. And then getting into the simple coloring, if you're going to have a girl, everything has to be pink now. If you have a boy, everything has to be blue now. The boys are going to be rough and tumble, and we have sports. Girls, you know, let's have makeup and describe their beauty. And even if you see a baby, it's, oh, is it a boy or a girl? And if you misgender a baby, it's as though it's the end of the world because you can't accurately describe a person without their gender. And then we do, you know, reinforcing behaviors where we call girls nice or sweet or give them rewards for being nice and sweet and boys strong and tough and give them rewards or at least not give them a punishment for being tough or aggressive. So these things happen even before we even born in today's society since we're able to use technology in order to determine one's sex. And then we begin the gendering process at that point. Or when people make comments like, he hits like a girl or she walks like a dude. Right. Yes. Yes. Or you're a boy, you're not supposed to wear sparkles or makeup. Or you're a girl, here, play with this doll. When many times people just want to, like, especially young kids, they love sparkly, pretty things, regardless of gender. Or, you know, being able to take care of people who are younger, of children, is something that both men and women need. However, many times like that's not reinforced or emphasized. And ironically, right. we are also getting into where even though there's more, for example, women entering the workplace, there is also more aspects of our society where gender is reinforced, such as the gendering of pins. So there was the women's pin where it was basically pink, or with the Super Bowl, there was the Doritos chips that are for ladies because they are less messy. However, these are things that are not necessarily needing to be gendered, but we, in our minds, we find ways of gendering many things that don't necessarily need to be gendered, whether it's toys or games, behaviors that are, can be attributed to people regardless of gender, we find ways of gendering those things and then reinforcing those genders either through rewards by complimenting children for performing correct behaviors or punishing them, putting them down, making fun of them for not performing correct, what we believe to be correct gender behaviors. So, Professor Graham, what this means is that when girls and boys and women and men start playing or working together, women are at a slight disadvantage because girls want to play nice, whereas boys just want to win. Talk to us about the implications for these tendencies when they show up in the workplace. You mentioned before in the previous podcast where we think of leadership as something where it's very directive and assertive, which tends to be seen as very masculine communication. However, there are many different types of leadership styles. So having leadership styles where it's about collaboration and working together and how we have commonalities, those are important as far as leadership too. 
However, if we think of leadership as something that boys or men or that is masculine communication, when women come into the workplace and either they don't perform those types of traits and try to focus on the commonalities, the collaboration, the working together, they may not necessarily be seen as a leader or you might have what's called the double bind where you have women who are direct and assertive and directive, but they're not necessarily seen as a woman. There are other words to describe them, which I will not say, but there are other words to describe them, and being a good leader is not one of them. And they are not only so labeled by members of the opposite sex. No. I try to reinforce that when we're talking about society and structuring and socialization, it's not something that one particular group does to another. It is something that we all participate in. It's perceptions that we all have and reinforce. And the only way to really address how we reinforce those things is to really be conscious of it, aware of it, and point it out when we see it. So it's not oh my goodness, men are awful to women, it's we as a society see women as, or at least their contributions, I should say, in the workplace as, you know, the collaboration, the working together, maybe not as much of a leader or a leadership style as being directive or assertive. So it's something that we all participate in. You can have women who punish other women for not performing gender correctly. You can have men punishing other men who are not performing gender correctly. And that's, this, again, going back to giving rewards or compliments, punishments, put-downs. Those are all ways that we teach others what's the appropriate behavior, especially when it comes to gender. So to some extent, are we teaching children to grow up to misunderstand one another in some ways? In some ways. In another way, it's we're teaching children to live in different worlds. We have young boys who are living in one world and young girls who are living in another world, even though they are all needing to interact and communicate and work together. We are a society. We do need to interact with each other. However, we've grown up in different worlds, so that leads to miscommunication and misunderstandings. Isn't this a recipe for disaster once boys and girls are all grown up and go to work? Yes, it is, especially because you've you've gone 20, 30 years of this type of behaviors, this understanding of the world, and then you get into the workplace and you're more solidified in your communication style. Professor Graham, are these phenomena U.S.-centric or are they global? They are global. I actually found a document by the International Labor Office where they talk about sexual harassment in national and international responses. This is something that many nations have to address or are addressing or not addressing adequately because when you have people of different genders interacting with each other, and again, they've grown up in different worlds, then you have miscommunication, you have misunderstanding, and which can lead to sexual harassment. And this is to the detriment of organizations and society, at least to the detriment of organizations because then you have people who are leaving the organization, you have people who you have to retrain, it can lead to negative perceptions of a particular organization, and then it has negative effects on society where you have people who either leave the workforce, may make less money, may lose money, 
that reinforce negative behaviors on other people, and then that also reinforces different stereotypes. So it's not a necessarily U.S.-centric phenomenon. However, how we address it may be different than other nations. Of course. Now speak to us, if you can, about the additional levels of complexity once you mix in transgender or disability or people of color in these early stages of socialization? We are definitely getting into intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw. And intersectionality does make a difference because it's not just gender, but it's also people's sexuality, it's ability, it's their race, it's their nationality. All of those make a difference in how gender is performed and also perceived. So there might be ways where people are called names because they don't perform their gender correctly, which also, when you get into the workplace, is a form of sexual harassment. Telling people that they aren't sexually desirable or attractive is also a form of sexual harassment in the workplace. But as a child, it might be seen as appropriate to call people names because of identities regarding ability, being part of the LGBTQ community. How gender is performed across races may be completely different. So the, the stereotype or perception is, is that white women are more, quote unquote, nice, whereas African-American or Latino women are seen as angrier or assertive. And so then those dynamics also play a part in the organizations. So you're not only addressing gender, but you're also addressing other aspects of people's identities regarding ability, being LGBTQ, being people of color, and those also are ways that we learn about gender too. Yes, further complicating matters. It does. Let me switch gears a little bit. Conversations about issues like courtship, consent, and relationships with the opposite sex clearly cannot begin on orientation day at work. We have to start having these conversations much earlier, don't we? Yes, we do. One thing I will have to say, the good thing about culture is that it does change, and it does seem to be more change with upcoming generations where you have parents who are teaching their children about consent. For example, if you go to a family function, they don't necessarily have to hug and kiss people just because they want to. They can say no. I don't want to hug and kiss. You know, my aunt, my uncle, that's okay. And so as they get older, they can realize that that they can say no to others. And then it's also a matter of being able to accept no. If you ask someone to, so for example, with kids, if a kid wants another kid to hug them or to give a hug and the kid doesn't want to, being able to accept no and being okay with that and managing that emotion. And then as you get more and more into education, I know at the college level, students go through Title IX training, and that also talks about consent and what's appropriate behavior, what's inappropriate behavior, reporting inappropriate behavior. And I found, for example, I was teaching my organizational communication class last semester, and I usually have a section on sexual harassment and harassment in general, but sexual harassment. And students had this in ways they haven't in years previously, this awareness of 
what sexual harassment is, what can be done about it, how it can happen. It was, yeah, yeah, we know we did the sexual harassment training. You sound very optimistic uh, about <laughs> these generations, Y and Z, and their understanding uh, of, of what's appropriate and what's not early on. Sometimes I'm very hopeful and sometimes I am not. I try to be hopeful. It's, it's always little bit by little bit because, again, going back to socialization, there's always the ideal and we teach the ideal, but then there's the practice and what happens when people actually get into organizations. And going back to how we're socialized, there's also the socialization as children eventually become teenagers and eventually join the workforce. And when they join the workforce, usually it's in a service industry where there tends to be more rampant sexual harassment, where you have customers or peers or supervisors who may be doing inappropriate behavior or saying inappropriate things, whether it's jokes, whether it's calling people names, and the belief that that's okay. So I'm hoping that with the idealization, um, I also understand that people do get socialized, and so that may not necessarily have the fruit that I imagine in my mind that it could be, but little bit by little bit, it'll get better. Right. So, Professor, how early should these messages start getting communicated around these topics, and more importantly, by whom? I would say everyone. So, let's unpack that. Like I mentioned before, when you're talking pre-birth, we can start with parents instead of reinforcing gender stereotypes on a child that has not even been born yet. We don't have an idea of this child's personality. Start thinking more holistically of the possibilities of children instead of um, reinforcing gender stereotypes. And then, you know, it goes into family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Again, either not reinforcing those gender stereotypes because, again, it's something that we're all conditioned to when you hear it, when you see it, when you acknowledge it in yourself, being able to really think about where those stereotypes are coming from, where those beliefs are coming from, and trying to find ways to combat it. You have caregivers, so babysitters, nannies, daycare workers, pastors, priests, as your children get older, organizations that become a part of Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, if they join any sort of sports league, it's anybody that has any interaction, any connection with children, no matter how small it may seem, children are sponges. And they hear when people say, oh, he's rough and tumble like a boy should be, or He's so feminine. He's not like a real boy. Or, you know, all girls or women really like to be pretty. Or, I can't wait till you get older and you start wearing makeup. Those are things that aren't necessarily true of all genders, all men, all women. But children hear that and come to understand that's how they're supposed to be. Those are things that are reinforced by everyone. And, again, as we've been socialized, it may come to our mind, it may come out in ways we don't even realize, and being able to contradict and critique ourselves and others in a respectful way um, can, is also another way that we need to, we can address the socialization of children. You talked about some of the interactions when 
when people were kids around their families and, and not wanting to hug. Very interesting. Take us to the next phase of what some of these conversations around relationships and intimacy sound like with a, a girl or a boy who's 15 or 16 or 17. Pre-work. Pre-work. Again, very similarly where it is about being able to accept yes or no. For example, if you're romantically interested in someone, it's okay to talk to them, to ask them out, but if they say no or they're not interested, then being able to accept that no. So 14, 15, 16-year-olds, they need to learn how to accept and receive no. But also going back to changes in generation, in previous years, what was considered consent was if someone said, you know, someone harassed me, someone sexually assaulted me, the question is, did you say no? Instead of someone has to say no, the question is, does the person say yes? And that's also another conversation. Is it because sometimes people may feel uncomfortable saying no? They may feel, you know, a sense of it might be a safety issue. They don't want to, again, going back to not wanting to be mean, they don't want to say no. But the question is, did they say yes? And that is another aspect is, did someone that you're talking to, that you seem interested in, did they say yes to going out on a date, to hugging, to kissing, rather than did they say no? And Very that's also something that is transitioning is the needing affirmative consent, not you didn't get a no. Right, right. Now, some sociologists would have us believe that there will always be a sexual tension between males and females when they are brought together, at least initially, and before most settle into a platonic understanding. Do you believe this, Professor? I always have a problem with always <laughs> because <laughs> there's all there's there's really varying dynamics. I wouldn't say there's always sexual tension, but even if there was, going back to you know socialization and being adults, it's how you manage it. So just because there's sexual tension doesn't mean or you feel sexual towards someone or have sexual feelings towards someone doesn't mean you can act or speak or behave on those. Mm -hmm. But there isn't always, like not necessarily, there isn't always sexual tension. What happens for that small minority of people in the workplace, men or women, who may privately struggle with letting that attraction, that sometimes happens, go? And particularly when there is an imbalance of power, for instance, when when the two people are not peers. Again, it's about being able to accept no, receive no in a respectful way. And for those who may have sexual attraction to someone and don't feel as though they can let it go, it's, again, along with many emotions that we feel, it's about being able to manage it effectively. Another example might be if you feel very angry towards someone in an organization, you shouldn't necessarily go yelling and screaming at them, throwing things, or hitting them. What you do is find more appropriate ways to handle those types of feelings. And if you really feel as though you absolutely cannot manage 
your feelings in this in that particular context, then you might need to find another either place in the organization or, or another organization to be a part of. But again, let's go back to being able to accept no, whether it's from the person that you have sexual or romantic feelings for or no from an organization that you are a part of that may say people in this organization cannot date or be in romantic relationships with others. Good point. Excellent. Now, I want to take you back, Professor, to some things that you talked about with respect to the issue of stereotypes of male leadership. There is an excellent 2016 study that was conducted by the American Association of University Women entitled Barriers and Bias, the Status of Women in Leadership. And as that study indicated, because men, and particularly white men, have held most leadership positions in society for so long, the concept of leadership has been infused with stereotypically masculine traits like aggression, decisiveness, a willingness to engage in conflict, and strength, to name a few. And while boys are encouraged and socialized to cultivate these traits, Girls are often discouraged and are led to believe early on that such traits in females are inappropriate and undesirable. You, you spoke to that a little earlier on. How do we get away from making leaps that some of those so-called masculine traits are necessary components for successful leaders? Again, I would say in that AAU 2006 study did a good job of talking about the need for mentorship and guidance and rewarding people who have many different types of leadership styles. Sometimes people don't like this word, but I do love it. Diversity is so important in organizations, Mm -hmm. and that's also diverse leadership styles. If everyone is assertive and decisive and especially likes conflict, sees every opportunity for conflict as I'm going to win this, and that's the type of leadership style that's rewarded and everybody does that, it's really difficult to get things done if everybody's the same and has a similar leadership style. You do need people who are more collaborative. You need people who are thinking about the entire picture. Not that Decisiveness, you're not thinking about the entire picture, but you need people who are thinking about ways of including others who may not necessarily have a voice. You do need people who say, okay, let's slow down, let's be reflective about this, let's think about this instead of moving ahead with what we're doing. You need those people in an organization, in leaderships. It's a balance. Again, it's about finding ways of rewarding many different types of leadership styles. So shouldn't we introduce some kind of leadership training into high school curricula for boys and girls? I 100% believe so, especially because in high school you have students who are leaders, who are demonstrating leadership. And leadership isn't just being in charge, it's being able to influence others. Even if you don't have someone who's in charge, you want people in an organization who can influence others in a positive way. What you want in high school is for kids to learn how to influence each other and their communities and their organizations in the future in positive ways, in productive ways. 
So being able to define leadership and leadership styles for high school students to learn what types of leaders they are, what strengths do they have as leaders, what are things that they don't do as well as a leader so they can develop those particular leadership skills. Those things are so important. And the earlier we can teach that, the better off we are as a society. Agreed. Agreed. Talk to us about the usefulness of ensuring frequent and high-quality interactions with and introductions to leaders of both genders early on in life to debunk notions that only men are leaders. And, and what could those initiatives substantively look like beyond take your daughter to work days? Yes, take your daughter to work day. It, it can be helpful, but then you also have to have the connections in order to have a variety of different types of experiences regarding the work that you see. Because generally what happens is people go with their parent and depending on what their parent do, you may not necessarily get to see different types of work. I know some schools may do a career day where they have people come in from different, you know, they have parents come in and they talk about their careers. But instead of the parents coming in, possibly having different types of people from organizations and people in different types of jobs, so then kids and students can see the different types of people who exist in organizations, that there are women who are in leadership roles, who are in executive levels, and it's possible. And also talking about those pitfalls that they've experienced and the benefits that they've had, the good parts of what they have. And talking to both men and women about that, because it's not just for women to know so they can overcome those pitfalls, but also for yeah. young men to know so they know how to not perpetuate those pitfalls, so they don't perpetuate the systems that have brought about the inequality that we see in our society today and in organizations. You can have this in different classes where you talk about different people in history who may have done things that aren't traditionally masculine or feminine. Um, for example, famous people in the arts, in dance, that's seen as more of a feminine type of career, or women in business or in STEM, which is seen as more of a masculine type of career. And then also, some schools are very good about getting children in lots of different types of activities, both men and women, and that's also another great opportunity. So that way it's not, okay, I have a boy, so let's get my boy in sports. I have a girl, let's get my girl in arts. But arts is something that's beneficial for everyone. Dance is something that's beneficial for everyone. Sports is something that's beneficial for everyone. And you never know where someone's interest and passions may lead because of who they are. But their gender, because of the societal structures that may exist, might stop them from participating in that. If we can lessen those societal structures, then who knows what kids can become in the future. So true. You mentioned sports. And for the benefit of our listeners, Title IX, of course, prohibits sex discrimination in education, including discriminatory policies and admissions, recruitment, counseling, and athletics, and addressing sexual harassment and violence in our schools. Professor, can you address any of the ways in which some kind of strengthening of Title IX could impact females later in life at work? Well, one benefit, like you mentioned, has been 
having equality in sports. And athletics have, has been a way for women to develop their leadership skills and also their competitive skills, which tends to be seen as a more masculine leadership style, which is great. Mm-hmm. But also because colleges have to do Title IX training with students. This means that students are being socialized more and more regarding what's appropriate work behavior in the classroom in college. So they're not waiting till orientation day to have the quote-unquote sexual harassment training. They are having that training earlier and earlier, which actually is a benefit for organizations because then you have students who are socialized at an earlier age regarding what's appropriate behavior and what's inappropriate behavior. Yes. Professor, I would like to give you the opportunity to offer any closing thoughts that you might have on your mind with respect to these issues. I would just like to say that, first of all, I think this is a wonderful podcast and it is so important to discuss. The issues that we see in organizations, anytime people think, I'm struggling with this issue regarding whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's nationality, language, ability, LGBTQ, many times it has something to do with how we've been socialized as human beings. And thinking about whether or not that socialization really does work to the best interest of us as individuals, our organization, and society. Professor Graham, thank you so much for joining me today to explore part two of such an important discussion. Thank you so much for having me, and I really enjoyed this. We have a lot of work ahead in our collective journey to address and repair dysfunctional workplace cultures wherein gender-based disparities and abuses have been permitted to flourish. But that work cannot rest with companies. As Professor Graham has made so very clear today, and in accordance with that ancient African proverb, it really does take a village to raise a child. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcast@littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. As always, thank you for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.